This morning, uh, we are uh, continuing a series called God of the Mountains. We uh, actually started it uh, several weeks ago, but uh, we've had, uh, we had Father's Day, and then we had Fourth uh, of July, and then we had a missionary, and so uh, we, we've kind of been going every other week or so on this series, but uh, we're, we're going to be looking today at uh, the Mountain of Deceit. And, uh, and we're going to learn what that means in just a moment. We're going to be in the book of Judges. If you, want to, if you want to turn to Judges chapter 17, that's where we're going to be reading from in a moment. But you know, the, the book of Judges is perhaps one of the most misunderstood of all the many misunderstood books in the Bible. There was a radio preacher once who, who described the book of Judges as the book of victories. And honestly, I, I, I cannot imagine a more superficial view of the, of the book of Judges than to call it a book of victories because it's, it's actually the story of the unraveling of a society. It's, it's the gradual degeneration of the entire Hebrew life, faith, nation, uh, culture, and, and society in the period of Judges that was interrupted by the constant reminder of God's grace through the interjection into that downward spiral of periodic heroes or champions or as they are commonly called judges. God would interject someone uh, to bring relief and to express his, his joy and I mean, excuse me, his love and his grace. He'd interject someone like Samson or, or Gideon or Jephthah or Deborah or Barak or Shamgar and, and on and on the list goes. But gradually, when you read through the book of Judges, gradually the periods of time between the judges' appearances, grow, it grows longer. And the, and the judges themselves become weaker until finally the, the final judge, Samson, is the epitome of all that is happening. Despite uh, the, the fact that God uses him in a great way, Samson's life was, was beset with the immorality and the confusion and the wretchedness that, is, that was just flowing all around him. So, so, it, so much so to, to the point that it became, becomes difficult to tell the difference between the judge and the people uh, based upon his lifestyle. And that trend continues throughout the book until finally in the last few chapters of the book of Judges, there there are no judges at all. And it just, the book sort of just meanders to an ending and it's not really in any specific necessarily chronological order there toward the end, but it just wanders and unravels the story does in front of our eyes. Well, the story that we're going to read concerns a man named Micah. Now, I want to be very clear, this is not the prophet Micah. Uh, it's only coincidental that he shares the same name. This is just an ordinary man of Mount Ephraim whose name is Micah. And the reason the story is a story about this man named Micah is included in the ending chapters of the book of Judges is because Micah is representative of all that was going on in his society. The story is not included because it's unusual. The story is included because it reveals to us the character and nature of Hebrew society at the end of the period of the Judges. So now that we're all up to speed, let's begin reading in verse 1 of chapter 17 of the book of Judges. Now a man named Micah from the hill country of Ephraim said to his mother, The 1,100 shekels of silver that were taken from you and about which I heard you utter a curse, I have that silver with me. I took it. Then his mother said, The Lord bless you, my son. 
When he returned the 1,100 shekels of silver to his mother, she said, I solemnly consecrate my silver to the Lord for my son to make an image overlaid with silver. I will give it back to you. So after he returned the silver to his mother, she took 200 shekels of silver and gave them to a silversmith who used them to make the idol. And it was put in Micah's house. Now this man Micah had a shrine and he made an ephod and some household gods and installed one of his sons as his priest. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. It's a very interesting interjection there that in the middle of him creating his own God and installing his own priest that says everyone was just doing what they thought was right in their own eyes. Verse 7, a young Levite from Bethlehem in Judah who had been living within the clan of Judah left that town in search of some other place to stay. On his way, he came to Micah's house in the hill country of Ephraim and Micah asked him, where are you from? I'm a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, he said, and I'm looking for a place to stay. Then Micah said to him, Live with me and be my father and priest, and I'll give you ten shekels of silver a year, your clothes and your food. So the Levite agreed to live with him, and the young man became like one of his sons to him. Then Micah installed the Levite, and the young man became his priest and lived in his house. And Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will be good to me, since this Levite has become my priest. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I'm coming to you believing, God, that the Holy Spirit will make these words come alive in the hearts of everyone that's listening today. I know, God, that if I preach in my own strength, that it will be of no avail. I'm asking and believing that you would speak to us today, not at the level of our intellect, but, and not even at the level of human communication, but deep within, God, that you would speak to our spirits by your Spirit. Commune with every person deep within the inner man. And now in, in, the, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, in the authority given unto the church by, the, by faith in the name of Jesus, we bind every spirit of confusion and delusion and deceit. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you that your Holy Spirit will rush in and cover us and, and, and deal with us today deep, deep within. Because Lord, we would rather have a word of rebuke from you than empty flattery from the lips of men. We ask all of this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Hardly a story can be found in the Bible that gives a more accurate portrait of the moral and spiritual confusion that exists in the Western world today. I, I believe with my whole heart that the greatest challenge that the 21st century church is facing is the challenge to confront a worldwide spirit of deceit. Look at the story. We, we have to get past our American mentality, and we have to put ourselves as much as we can back into the men mentality of this Jewish family at the time of, of the judges. This man, Micah, overhears his mother putting a curse on some thief that stole some silver from her bedroom. And now when I say that she's putting a curse on a thief, I don't mean that she's just using bad language. That's not the cursing that she was using. She's actually imposing a curse on this thief. We don't know what that curse is, but she is calling down a curse, something terrible on his children, on his house, on his family, on his business. We don't know what it is, but she is asking God to place a curse on him. And her son overhears her, his mother placing the curse on this thief. Now, he cares nothing for God. He has no conscience. 
And he obviously doesn't care about his mother because he's the one that stole the silver from his mother. He has not a thought for anything except this one thing. He believes that his mother's curse will fall on him. Listen, honest, as a side note, when you're not walking in the power of God, when you're not covered by the blood of the Lamb, when you're not residing securely in the power of the name of Jesus, then you are vulnerable to and constantly fearful of these supernatural powers. You know, I remember a few years ago when I was in Haiti on a missions trip, I, I was there, while I was there, I actually met a man. He was a voodoo priest. And I went and met him in his voodoo temple there in Haiti. And, and, and this voodoo priest had heard the gospel and he actually had a desire to, to follow Jesus, but he, he, didn't, he hadn't made that decision yet at that time because he didn't know how to support his family if he quit the voodoo priesthood. And, but, but, you know, in meeting him and talking with people, one of the questions that gets asked in Haiti is something like this. They say, can a voodoo priest put a curse on a Christian? And the answer is, absolutely not. No, the, verb, the book of Proverbs says, in Proverbs 26, 2, like a fluttering sparrow or a darting swallow, an undeserved curse will not land on its intended victim. Now listen to this. I want you to understand this. When you're, when you're worried, when you begin thinking about the powers of darkness, you need to remember you have the shield of faith. You have the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. You are washed in the blood of Jesus, and your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, and you have nothing to fear from any power of darkness. And I'm not saying that the enemy doesn't have power. He does have power, but the enemy does not have the power to penetrate the veil of protection that we have in the name of Jesus. He hides us in the cleft of the rock and covers us there with his hand. But this man, not Micah, however, he had no such protection. He had no such confidence. When you're, when you're living outside the will of God, you're fearful of the powers of supernatural dark, darkness, which, which are real, but cannot touch a Christian because an undeserved curse will not land on his, on, on his intended victim. But this man, however, knows that he has no protection from the curse. Because he's living outside the power and outside the will of God. He's living outside the protection of God. And, and so he hears this and he rushes into his mother and he says, Wait a minute, Mama. Before you start putting this curse on this guy that stole this, you, you need to know something. You need to know that it was me. I stole the money. I stole the silver. And so he returns the silver to his mother. Listen to the numbers here because he, he returns 1,100 shekels of silver. And his mother said, the Lord bless you, son, which is kind of odd. Oh, God bless you, son. You're such a good boy. You stole my money, but you brought it back. Good boy. Just an odd statement. She said, she went on, she said, I solemnly consecrate my silver to the Lord. Isn't that what it said? She said that. She consecrated all of her silver, every shekel of it to the Lord. Why? She consecrated all of the silver to make an image overlaid with silver so that her son might have an idol to worship. Confusion. Can you believe this? This is a family that probably had the words Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one God. You shall have no other gods before him. They probably had that carved on their doorpost. That's what they did in Israel. The, the basic fundamental <clears throat> excuse me, tenet of their faith was that they're to make no graven images, no idols for worship. And this woman says, I dedicate this silver to God in order to make for you an image overlaid with silver for you to make a house of God to worship in your house. 
She said, I have dedicated the entire amount for that purpose. Then she says, it, it says that she, she takes how much? 200 shekels of silver and gave them to a silversmith who used them to make the idol. Did, did she say that she had consecrated the entire amount to God? She did. She, that's what she said. So now we know that the son is a thief and the mother is a liar. This is what we know so far. She consecrated the whole amount to God and then only took 200 shekels to the silversmith. And Micah then, uh, the silversmith makes these idols, these false gods, and Micah then takes these false gods and puts them in a shrine. And if you're familiar with, uh, even today in, in uh, many a Asian households, they have these little shrines, these little temples set up inside the house against one wall. And, and so he would have had a little house set up against the wall, a little covering for, for these false gods, and he would burn incense there before them. He would worship before them and pray before them. And he places the idol there in his house. And then it says that Michael consecrates one of his own sons to be a priest for him, but before God, made of stolen silver, which he had stolen from his own mother, returned because of superstition about which she lied to him. She consecrates his, he consecrates his own son as a priest. That alone is odd because he's an Ephraimite. He has no business consecrating, consecrating anybody to be a priest at all let alone his own son who is not a Levite. But he just doesn't feel good about the situation. He doesn't feel right about worshiping this false god made of stolen silver that he that stolen from his mother, returned because of superstition about which she lied. And so he says, I, I, I know that the law has not been fully satisfied. I need a Levite. He said, that's what I need. I need a Levite. If I just have a Levite, everything will be good. I need a Levite for a priest. But, but, but you know what, if you, that's what you need, but you don't have one, you just make do what you have, with what you have. So he, he says, son, you're going to be the priest of the household. Well, one day, Micah goes out to check the mail. And, and this man with his, I picture him with his belongings, you know, wrapped up in a, in, a, in a rag, you know, tied to a stick over his shoulder. He walks up and his wanderers, this guy is wandering by and, and Micah asks this man, he says, where are you going? And the man answers, oh, I'm, I'm just looking for a job. I left my home and I'm wandering around trying to find some place to live, some place to get a job, some place where I can make it a home. And Micah says, well, where are you from? And the man, man says, I'm from Bethlehem, Judah. He says, oh, you're, you're from Bethlehem. What, what tribe do you belong to? And the man says, I'm a Levite. Oh, I need a Levite to be a priest. So he kicks his son out of office and takes in this stranger and consecrates him to be a priest. Now, now listen, listen to that last line. I mean, isn't, is this a butte or what? He says, now I know the Lord will be good to me since this Levite has become my priest. In the middle of all the other things that he's doing, in the middle of all of the sin and all the false worship and all the idolatry and all these other things going on, he says, now I know because I've got a Levite to be priest and that's what the law says, so now God is going to be good to me. He's worshiping false gods in the name of Jehovah made of stolen silver which he swiped from his own mother, returned because of the fear of her curse about which she lied about dedicating it all to the, to the Lord using a man-made priest consecrated by his own hand and he believes that he's going to get the blessings of God because he has satisfied the demand of the law to have a priest that's a Levite. It's astonishing. 
It's astonishing that, that he could say something so outlandish. Now I know that the Lord will be good to me since this Levite has become my priest. It's one, honestly one of the most provocative stories in the entire Bible. This man is living in crass, blatant deceit. And listen, my friend, I believe with my whole heart that the worst kind of deceit is not when we deceive each other. The worst kind of deceit is not even when I try to deceive God, but the most, the most dangerous kind of deceit is when I deceive myself. When I'm out of touch with the reality of my own experience with God, I'm in a very, very dangerous place. This, this man, Micah, has lost touch with reality. And he is, this man, Micah, he is symbolic of literally thousands, hundreds of thousands of people across the face of America who are living in spiritual deceit. They don't know really what's going on in their own life because they are able to satisfy the cultural demands of religion as they understand it in one way or another. For example, the man who says to himself, now I know the Lord will be good to me because I've joined my grandmother's church. Or, or now I know the Lord will be good to me because I've become president of the Lions Club for, for Pete's sake. Or now I know that the Lord will be good to me because I've sold 10,000 light bulbs in, the, in the, 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 the fund drive for our church. Or now I know the Lord will be good to me because I contributed to some need. Or because I bought food for some poor person. Or, or, or because I've just been such a nice person, now I know the Lord will be good to me. He believes that the Lord will be good to him. Because of something he's done that he identified as what God would require of him. This is the modern version of having a Levite as your priest while you worship false gods. Listen to me now. There there is power that is unleashed when the power of God penetrates the veil of deceit. Now listen, I'm, I'm going to tell you something. You know, listen, pray that God's power will penetrate the veil of deceit. But you need to remember this, that when that happens, when God's power penetrates the veil of deceit, one of two things are going to happen. Either revival or, or a riot. Something is going to happen. You know, there's a young evangelist, I, I heard him tell the story of the time when he went to preach at a camp meeting in North Georgia. And he was a young man, uh, pretty new to the experience of Pentecost, and he preached in, in all the power the Lord would give him, all that he knew at that night. And one night after he'd finished preaching uh, uh, at this little, you know, little brush arbor meeting with sawdust on the floor and people were around the altar and they were praying and seeking God and, and he was down there around the altar with them and all of a sudden this, this great big man came, came just barreling up the center aisle of that, of that uh, tent meeting and, and he was peeling off his, his coat and yelling at the evangelist and saying, I'm going to tear you limb from limb. And, and there were several businessmen standing between this evangelist and this giant of a man and every one of them stepped out of the way. <laughs> but eventually, you know, I mean, this guy just kept charging the, toward the, right up toward the pulpit, yelling at the young evangelist, shaking his fist at him, which was as big as a ham, and, and his face was red with fury as he went for the preacher, and finally a bunch of guys grabbed the man, and he, but he kept yelling at the preacher. He, he said, I never thought I'd live to see the day when someone would curse from the pulpit of this tabernacle. He said, this tabernacle is sacred to me, and I never dreamed I'd live to see the day when somebody would curse from here. 
I'm fixing to beat you in front of everybody in this church because, tonight because you deserve it. Well, they eventually dragged this big man out to his pickup truck and he drove off. That young preacher was just so confused. He, he was hurt. He was wounded. He, he was just so distressed he, that he, he was just literally shaking all over. Well, they had recorded the service uh, back then, and for those that are too young to know, on this thing called a cassette tape. <laughs> Some of you have never, never seen or heard of that, and, um, and you, can look, you can Google it. I'm sure there's a picture in the archives somewhere. Um, but they had recorded it on a tape, and so he, he got a copy of that recording and took it back to his cabin with him, and he, he put the tape in his tape player and started listening to it. He, he, he thought to himself that the whole time he was thinking, I, you know, I've lived a bad life, and, and I'm new to the, to the things of the Spirit, so maybe in the heat of the moment, some terrible thing popped out of my mouth, and I didn't even realize I'd said it. And, and so he thought, if I have done that, I'm going to find it, and I'm going to stand in front of the people tomorrow night in that tabernacle, and I'm going to apologize to everyone. So he put that tape in and began listening for something offensive. And as he was listening to the message, uh, uh, a, a knock came to the door. And the first thought he had was, oh no, that man is back and he's going to get me this time. So he just said, who's there? And an old man answered, it's Reverend so-and-so. I, I don't remember the name. And he opened the door and it was an elderly pastor who said, I, I need to come in and talk with you, son. And he said, all right, come on in. Let, let me turn this tape off. And he just assumed the man was there to talk to him about whatever had gone on. He said, the pastor said, you're listening to your sermon, aren't you? He said, well, yes, sir, whatever I said, I want to hear it. I want to be, be a man. I want to face it. Whatever I said, I'm ready to hear it. I want to deal with it. And the old pastor said, son, turn the tape off. You, you did not curse from that pulpit tonight. He said the curse that man heard was the curse in his own life. Tonight you broke into enemy territory, son, because you preached that racism is murder and that man is the local president of the Ku Klux, Ku Klux Klan. The curse that he heard, he said, was the curse on his own life and it actually sounded to him as if curse words were coming out of your mouth. And right then, this young evangelist realized that when you begin to touch the, the soft underbelly of the spirit of deceit with the sword of the spirit, that you're dealing in dangerous business, that the enemy will push back. And I believe that this problem at, at many multiple levels lies across the face of cultural religion in, in America. We hide from the real demands of Christ and the call to commitment, full surrender, full devotion, the idea that God is calling us to a higher level of separated living, holiness of heart, holiness of life. We hide from these things through things like having a Levite as a priest. That's a symbol, you see, of the things in our lives. We mask what God really wants to do by trying to fulfill something that we think he wants us to do. The guy who fulfills the demands of some cultural religion and says there, now I've paid God off, I've satisfied, satisfied his demands and I can do whatever I want and God must still bless me. Maybe he goes to church and he feels the weight of the sin in his life and he falls on his face at the altar and begins to weep and he cry and he weeps but he never repents and he's not saved but he actually believes and he says to himself, now I know the Lord will be good to me because I cried at church. 
Or maybe he attends church and sits through the sermon and he puts his pittance into the offering and says, now I've satisfied my obligation to God and he must bless me. You you, you can go to places in in Latin America and, and watch elderly women crawl up the steps of a basilica on their hands and knees and they crawl up and down those steps for hour after hour because they believe that every step reduces one by one year the time spent in purgatory of a departed loved one. Their palms will be bleeding, their, their hands torn, their knees shredded. And the, the, those old women will, women will struggle up and down those stairs trying to minister somehow some level of grace to a deceased husband or a father or, or other relative. And your heart would go out to them. You want to lift them to their feet and say, this is useless. It's appointed unto man once to die, then the judgment. Just look to the Lord Jesus with your own heart and believe on him and you'll be saved. But you know what's more terrifying than that? What's more terrifying and frustrating than that is to return to the great body of American Protestantism and find that we do the same thing. We, we finger the rosary beads of, of building fund drives and we worship at the feet of the God of good deeds thinking that by doing some act of sacrifice or some act of giving that we've satisfied God's call and we live in confusion and we are deceived and we impose confusion on the church, we impose a kind of enforced level of deceit. Now here's where it really begins to strike home. When we we get into the flame of the experience of Pentecost, it it stirs elements within us that have never been touched before. Worship that, that is free and joyful and happy, excited. Praise God, I mean, there's nothing like it. There's nothing like the joy of just busting loose from our shackles in worship and worshiping Jesus. There's just nothing like it, is there? Worship in spirit and freedom. Oh, there's just joy in that. But the problem is that a powerful, moving worship service can become so joyful, so happy, so unfettered, so emotional, so so soul-stirring that it can actually cloak the symptoms of sin in our own lives. It can actually administer a a kind of anesthetic to our spirits that makes us able to hide from the convicting presence of the Holy Spirit. And we can uh, be deceived by our emotions about our relationship with Jesus. And And we can walk in a spirit that says, I know that the Lord will be good to me since this Levite has become my priest. It can happen. That's why the Bible says in Proverbs, guard your heart. Guard your heart. A woman discovered that her husband, a man who was very active in their church, was being unfaithful, but he denied it. Well, she eventually recorded a telephone conversation between the man and his his mistress, and and the pastor of the church took another mature man of faith with him to play the tape for him and to confront this man in his sin. At the house, it was just, it was just so, so astonishing. The pastor said, Brother, we've come to confront you according to the teaching of Scripture about this adultery. And the man just replied, he said, Oh, my wife is just paranoid. There's, there is no such thing going on. This is crazy. If anybody needs help, it's my wife. She's crazy. And he just seemed as guileless as a dove. His eyes were open and, and pleading and And he looked at those men right in the face and said, there's nothing. God is my witness. There's nothing. And the 
To which the man the pastor had brought along said, He is, brother. God is your witness. The pastor said, Do you see this tape in my hand? He said, Your wife has recorded a lewd conversation between you and your lover. It's obscene and it's on tape. It's here on this tape and we're going to play it. And I guess he thought it was a bluff because he said, Go ahead, go on, play the tape. I have nothing to fear. I don't know what you're trying to prove here, but there's no tape because there's no conversation that ever occurred. Well, the pastor put the tape in and played it. It was filled with just absolutely terrible, horrible things. And the man reached over and turned the tape player off and said, Well, listen to this. He said, Well, yes, all right, you got me. But then he said, But that, was, that one conversation is the only thing that ever happened. I'm telling you, the problem here is deceit. He was deceived. This is not some unschooled pagan out in the world. This this man was a leader in the church. He was on the board of deacons. He was faithful in bringing his tithes to the church. He traveled around and spoke in different functions. He sang in a gospel quartet. He was one of, if not the most prominent layman in the church. But all of those religious activities can be the pill that masks the symptoms, that masks the conviction of the Holy Spirit. See, here's the thing. If you're a physician and somebody comes into you and says, well, you know what? An hour ago I had a terrible fever and my head was hurting and my throat was killing me, but I don't feel anything right now, so I guess I'm well. And the doctor says, okay, well, what happened an hour ago that made it all change? And the man says, well, uh, I don't know. I guess I'm well. He says, well, the doctor says, did you take anything? He said, oh, well, yeah, I took a bunch of ibuprofen. I took every kind of medication that we have in our medicine cabinet. I doctored myself up. And the doctor says, well, sir, you're an idiot because now we don't have any idea what's wrong with you. You've masked the symptoms. And there's no way I can diagnose your disease without the symptoms. We have to wait until the medicine wears off. And that's the reason I think that sometimes great experiences of Pentecost can actually mask the intrusion of the Holy Spirit as it begins to press in on us. And we can hide behind the the joy of the moment and not deal with the thing that he's actually trying to say to us. See, Micah, he didn't have to deal with anything because Micah had the trappings of religion. He had a priest, he had gods, he had worship, he had all these things, and and they had cost him a great deal of money. Therefore, he was able to hide his eyes from the horrifying facts of the situation. You know, years ago, a a young girl came to the altar during a revival service and told the pastor, she said, I'm living in sin, I've been involved in an affair with a married man, I want to get free of it. And the pastor and the evangelist that was there holding the revival prayed with this young girl and she said she was going to break it off. But but as they were praying, there was something that stirred in the heart of the evangelist. And he looked at her and he said, young lady, there's something in my heart. I don't know why I need to ask this, but he he said, do do I know the man with which you're involved? And she said, yes, you do. That's that's why I came. Well, when she said that man's name, the, the, the evangelist's heart just broke He said, all right, well then with your permission, I'm going to confront him. Well, later on, the next week, he called the man and they met at a restaurant and they sat down at the table and the evangelist said, I'm not here to eat, friend. I have no appetite. I'm here with a broken heart. And you know what that man said in response? He said, I did it. He said, I know why you've come. I know the church where you were preaching last week. And when you called me, I knew that she had come to you. 
And the evangelist said, well, how did you meet? And this was a 19-year-old girl, and this is a, a, he was a 52-year-old man. He said, how did you meet? And the man answered, the lay witness mission. And if you've never heard of the lay witness mission, it was a weekend prog- a program in which a team of laymen would, would get, come together and go to some, situ- some uh, uh, local location and share their faith in Christ. And he said, he said, I found that the easiest place to make contact is in the lay witness missions because people are stirred up for the things of God. Their emotions are out on their sleeves. They're all excited and excitable. I found that the easiest place to make contact. And the evangelist looked at him and said, he said, my God, man, you sound demonized. And he said, I don't know where I am anymore. I, I, I know something died in me a long time ago. The evangelist couldn't believe what he was hearing. They talked together for some time and they prayed together. And finally, eventually, the man said, can you give me some counsel about how I can be restored to ministry? And the evangelist said, no. No, that, that, I will not give you any such counsel. That's not the issue here. The issue here is whether you can be restored to God. The issue is whether you can be restored to your soul and to your sanity. You're in confusion, man. You're confused. And the issue for us is whether or not we can see things as they really are in our own lives. And and I know, listen, I'm using extreme and sort of bizarre examples, but to bring it right down to where most of us live, you know, those things are so wild that we can't relate to them, but let's bring it right down to where we live. Think about the woman sitting in church and the pastor preaches on forgiveness, and someone in the church did something horrible to her or to someone that she loves, and she crosses her arms across over her heart, and she says, I've forgiven that. I've forgiven that years ago. Uh, That's over with but just at that moment the person against whom she holds bitterness comes into the church late and sits down right in front of her and she says that's just like her comes in late look at her all dressed up acting all godly and the first praise chorus begins and the woman in front of her puts her hands up and begins to worship God and that woman sitting behind her begins to feel all the gurgling anger and resentment and bitterness bubbling up inside of her. And she says to herself, where does she get off praising God? After what she did, after the way she hurt me and she hurt my family and she hurt this church, how can she stand there and pretend to be a Christian? And that anger just starts bubbling and, and up inside of her. And the sermon comes right straight at her heart. And says, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your sins. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive you. And she says, well, this is not real unforgiveness. This is not real bitterness. This is not real anger. This is righteous indignation. It's deceit. It's deceit. It's confusion. You know, Micah, he was living a life that was filled with deceit and confusion in front of his own family. It's like the father who says, my my son is smoking marijuana, I could just throttle him. When he brings the boy to church and he says to the preacher, straighten my son up. He takes him to the youth pastor and says, straighten up my son, he's smoking pot, he's doing all this bad stuff. But the problem is the pastor himself, or not the pastor, the father himself has been arrested twice on DUI. And he can't go to sleep at night without without dosing himself on alcohol. It's a hypocrite. The father who says, oh, my son cheated on his algebra test. What's the matter with him? Haven't I taught him better than that? But then that's the father who lies on his tax return, brags about it, and excuses himself because he needs the money. 
You know what? You can't con a kid. You can't con a kid because a child looks at you and says, all right, if we're going to play the game, let's all play the game. Fathers, I'm telling you right now, I'm going to tell you the, the, the way to ensure that your child will turn away from church, to ensure that your child will eventually hate God and hate Christianity. You, that is, I'm going to give you the, how to do that. It's only going to take you a couple years to be able to accomplish this. Start by saying things like, the sermon was too long. The pastor is too short. The music is too loud. I don't like the music they chose. I don't like this. I don't like that. Just gripe and complain and gripe and complain. That's all you have to do. Because listen now, parents, you need to know this. Your children hate anything that makes you unhappy. And they don't understand why adults stay in and play religious games in a situation where they're unhappy. So the, so the, the, the kids who haven't learned all the compromise of, of American suburban living, living, they say to themselves, as soon as I'm able to make decisions myself, color me gone, I'm out of here. Because they take up offense a, a for dad or they take up offense for mom. And when you do this, you interject bitterness and resentment toward the church right into the lives of your children. And I've seen preachers do it. I've seen preachers do it. They gripe and complain about the elders and the, about the deacons, about the staff, about the people over the dinner table. And the whole time they're doing it, their babies are hearing what they're saying and they feed on that and they grow up on it. And the ch children grow up resenting their father's ministry. It's deceit and confusion. Something is wrong. When we can cover up the basic fundamental sinfulness of our lives with the appearance of religion. We get a priest that's a Levite and we tell ourselves that everything is okay when our hearts are filled with pride and selfish ambition and greed and lust and fear. See, this is what happens when you disassociate religious experience from the way in which you live. This, this is how we wind up with people that, have, that come into a worship service and have some big, high-blown religious experience. I mean, I, I mean, they just walk in and they just like stick their finger in the light socket of the Holy Spirit and God just, you know, just electrifies them, just pow, you know, zap. But they don't see that as having any impact on the way they think or live or relate to people. And what happens is you end up with the monstrosity of some guy who's talking in tongues in church and yet then treating his wife like dirt the rest of the week and his kids see that. That's how you end up with the monstrosity of some lady that's dancing in the aisles at church and speaking in tongues but then talks to her husband like he's some kind of nincompoop at home with no, no ounce of, not even an ounce of respect. And she says to herself, I've been praying for old Bob to get saved. I've just been praying and praying and praying for Bob to get saved. I tried to drag him to church. I've, boy, I've gotten him in the Word. I've taped Bible verses of, uh, up on the refrigerator and all the while she treats him like a fool and What's happening in the meantime is that Bob is digging in his heels, honey. He's saying, no way. If that's what it means to be saved, I'd rather go to hell. And he sees the deceit in it. He sees the confusion in it. He sees that something is wrong in it. When there's a separation between our spiritual experiences and the way we live, that's how we get people flowing in the gifts of the Spirit in power and then keeping a woman on the side. And that's confusing to us. When there's no connection between our experiences with God and the way that we live, confusion and deceit reign. That's what happened to Micah. 
Micah said, I have the appearance of religion, so I know God will, will be good to me. You know something? We're praying for revival here at this church. Revival is not when lost people get saved. That is a result of revival. If you have a true revival, you will see lost people getting saved. But that's not really what it is. Revival is when Christians make the connection between the way they relate to God and the reality of the way that they live and think and talk and treat each other. When God does a work in a Christian and raises us up and helps us begin to live out the word of God, live out the work that he's done in us, then the result of that is that people come to know Christ. When real, real, when real revival comes, the way Christians treat people uh, and, and, and treat relationships and treat the things in their life, it all changes as a result of that experience. That's real revival. And, and fathers, the, the, the sin of Michael was that he introduced a, a, a level of out-and-out deceit into his home that was unmasked. Micah's children could see through him. The great tragedy of deceit is not just what happens in the life of the person who is deceived. Because no person sins in a vacuum. Every time you sin, every time I sin, it hurts somebody else. It, it, it unleashes spiritual dynamics that bring wounding and hurt and pain to the lives of others. We, did, we, we didn't read the passage of scripture that follows the text that we read earlier from Judges. But what happened after that is the Danites swooped down on Micah's house and a band of warriors sack his house. They take everything. They loot everything. They take his silver gods and then they, they turn to the priest and then they say, who are you? And he says, why? I'm this man's priest. I go with these gods. And they say, well, then come with us. So they take the stolen gods and the silver and the priest decides to go with them. And Earlier in the story, it says that this Levite was content to stay with Micah, a, a man-made priest who has... Has, the, has a fear of men's faces. He's, he's content to dwell with the man. He doesn't want to dwell with God. He doesn't want to walk with God. He doesn't seek the mind of God. He doesn't preach the truth of God. He's content to dwell with the man. And the problem is that kind of priest won't last. That kind of priest won't endure the, the heat of reality. That kind of priest won't minister to your soul. And now that priest was gone out of Micah's house. He was gone with the false gods. He was gone with the religion. The Bible says that the Danites take away Micah's livestock. They take away everything out of his home. And the next line it says that they took away his little ones, his children. Micah's children were being herded off with the sheep and cattle to be slaves to the Danites. And Micah, naturally, he rushes after, after them, but, but listen to what he does. It's astonishing. He, he, he catches up to them. He's got this mob of people that he's gathered, and he catches up to them, and he sees the bandits herding his sheep and his cattle and his, and his children off to be slaves. And the Danites see that he's angry, and he has gathered this small mob, and they ask, what, what's wrong with you? And he says, what do you mean what's wrong with me? You took my silver gods and my priests, and now I have nothing left. He doesn't even mention his own family. When a man lives in deceit, his motives are clouded and his priorities are confused and he's out of touch with reality. He's losing his family. The whole thing is falling to pieces and all he cares about is his false gods. Where are you going with my gods? What confusion. I want to close with this story. Years ago, a young man in a Methodist church in Atlanta committed a crime 
while he was drunken, lost, and confused. And in the commission of that crime, a young man, an, an innocent bystander, was run down and killed. He left a widow, three young children. Well, the father of the boy who committed the crime got that boy off. I'm sorry to say. He never did a, 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 a day of jail time for his crime because the father had money. He should have gone to prison for years, but he got off. And it, but it satisfied the father, a very wealthy and prominent businessman, but it ate at that boy's heart. Eventually, that boy came to the pastor and he said, I can't live like this. My life is a mess. I'm hurting everybody I touch. And that young man gave his life to Christ. He got saved and delivered, filled with the Holy Spirit. God called that kid to preach. His life just sort of turned on like a light bulb, like a spotlight. It just, it was beautiful. That young man joined the youth group, got involved, and he began to come to church. He carried his Bible everywhere. He went under his arm. He was just a real joy to be around. He would join groups of uh, uh, people from the church going out to the streets, handing out gospel literature and talking to people and standing out there and giving his testimony. And the Lord was really using him. About six or seven months after that, his father came to talk with the pastor. He walked into the office, he slammed the door behind him, and he leaned over on, on his fingertips and leaned across the pastor's desk, and he said, I want to make one thing perfectly clear. He said, I am one of the wealthiest, I, actually he said, I am the wealthiest man in this church, and I'm on the official board of this church. I'm telling you now that if you ever attempt to make a telephone call to my son, if you would ever attempt to see him alone in private, if you ever attempt to make any contact, contact with my son ever again before you leave this church, I'll go straight to the bishop and have your job. I want to make that clear. And the pastor said, all right, sir, I'm not afraid of you. I'm not afraid of the bishop, but he's a minor and he's under your authority, so I won't do it. But I feel that I have a right to know why. The man said, I'll tell you why. He said, my son was all right until this church got a hold of him. Now, now when I take my son down to the country club, he, he embarrasses me because he won't even have a cocktail and he's trying to win my friends to Jesus. And he said, I'm tired of this. The pastor looked at that man with absolute amazement he said, all right, all right. He was all right until the church got a hold of him. All right. He was a drunk and a drug addict and a murderer. A man died. And that man turned around and walked out of the pastor's office. You see, when you sin, it touches everybody involved in the situation. And he took his son out of that church. And the pastor watched that boy lose his call to preach and lose his anointing and lose his touch with God and drift back into the world. And that boy became the most cold-eyed, cold-blooded, backslidden businessman you can imagine. And it was heartbreaking. The only prayer for that boy is that somehow, some way or another, God will break through. Oh, fathers, listen to me. Moms, listen to me. It's not just us. It's our little ones. It's not just us. 
It's, it's our spouses. It's not just us. It's our homes. It's not just us. It's our churches. It's not just us. It's each other. I need you to be real, men. I need you to persevere, persevere with God. I need you to be men of prayer. I need you to be men of holiness. We need each other. We need somebody to be real and holy and true and honest. We need each other to break through this wicked, vicious curse of deceit that's on the face of America. It's not what people think of me. Listen, I'll tell you something, my friend. This is very important. The opinions of other people do not carry any weight at all in eternity. If you've sinned, then the votes of 10,000 people will not cover it with God. But if you're right with God, then the bad opinion and the negative reputation of an entire city means nothing. We, we don't need micas who mask the reality of the situation with religious activity. With, with false gods made of stolen silver, ministered by a man-made priest who is content to dwell with men. We need husbands and fathers who walk with God in decency and in honesty and in holiness. We need husbands and fathers who won't mask the symptoms when the Holy Spirit moves in conviction. We need men who are willing to fall on their faces before God and say, oh God, what have I done? I have sinned. It's not the pastor. It's not my brother. It's not my sister. It's not the church. It's me, oh God, that's standing in need of prayer. We need women who will stand up and say, I will be a woman of God. I will be a light in the darkness. It doesn't matter what people think of me. I'm going to stand up and I'm going to do what's right. I'm going to live for Jesus in the midst of a dark world. Even if people attack me, even if people make fun of me, even if people hate me, I will still follow Jesus. I believe that God, the Holy Spirit, is weary of men that are constantly blaming their wives and wives that are constantly blaming their husbands and blaming the children and blaming the church or blaming the circumstances when God says, I'm dealing with you. This is a word for our fathers and grandfathers, for the men of our church. This is a word for the mothers and grandmothers, the women of our church. God's calling us to be people of holiness, people of decency, people of integrity, people of transparent honesty, people who are, are able to hear from God. And I'm especially talking I believe it's especially a word for us as men uh, of this church and men of this community. And the question that, that rings in my heart is, where are the men of God today? You read in the history and you read in the Bible of men of, uh, of God who yearned for the presence of God, who sold out and gave everything they had, including their very lives. They laid it all on the line and said, I will follow Jesus. Like Joshua who said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Where are the men of God today who stand up and say, I will lead my home for Christ? Where are the men who will lead their homes in honesty and holiness? Where are the men who will stand for Christ? no matter how it may damage the reputation. God is calling. God is calling. God is calling us. God is calling us to a higher level. God is calling us to greater holiness. God is calling us to greater intimacy. God is calling. Will you answer? Will you answer? Bow your head together with me. Heavenly Father, so come before you, Lord God. I know there are, some, there are many people here today and even those that are watching online. I know, Lord God, that there are many, many people who are absolutely sold out to you. 
But God, I also know that there are some of us that we hide behind the religious experience and we deceive ourselves into thinking that everything's okay with Jesus. When we know if we would just slow down and listen to your voice, we know that something's not right. And God, I pray that right now that we would, we would just, we would do that. We would slow down enough. That we would stop pretending and stop deceiving ourselves and say, okay, this is not about all the religious activities that I have. This is not about the tithe that I bring. This is not about my church attendance. This is not about any of those things. All those, those, those things are great. They're wonderful. They help us grow. But God, this is about our relationship with you. And Lord, if there's anybody that's listening to this that, that has deceived themselves into thinking that everything is okay with you because they're doing religious activity, I pray, God, that today you would break through that, that you would destroy that illusion, you would, you would, you would expose that lie and help them to start something new today. Lord, you spoke to us earlier to, in this service and you said, open your heart. I want to start something new. And God, I pray that somebody in this place would say, okay, God, I'm going to get serious. It's not going to be about my religious activities anymore. But I'm going to open my heart. I'm going to let you in. I want you to do something new. I want you to take me to, two, to new levels of holiness and new levels of intimacy with you. I want to be a real man of God. I want to be a real woman of God. I want to stand like a, a beacon in the midst of a dark world. I want people to be drawn to Jesus because of my life, not repelled because of my actions. With heads bowed and eyes closed and nobody's looking around. Even if you're watching on the live stream, I want you just to, as much as you can, isolate yourself with God. And I want to know if there's anybody here who would, would say, Pastor Dave, I feel like I've been hiding behind a facade. I feel like I know that there's something wrong spiritually in my life, but I've been going through the motions and, and I've been letting that deceive me into thinking that everything's okay. But today I want a fresh start. You know, that's the good news is that God is a God of fresh starts. He's a God of new beginnings. This message is difficult. This message is challenging. But the good news of this message is that if it describes you, you don't have to stay where you are. That the grace of God can change everything about your life. If you're willing to say, no more games, no more religiosity. I'm going to put my, hands in the, my life in the hands of Jesus. And if that's anybody in this place today and you say, Pastor Dave, I want you to include me in your prayer. Would you slip your hand up right where you are? Yes. Anybody else? Yes. Anybody else? Maybe you're online and you, you could just say, pray for me in the comments. I want to pray. And if you raised your hand or, or if you feel that and you didn't raise your hand, it doesn't matter. I want you just to tur turn to him and say, God, I want something new and something fresh, something real. I don't want to just hide behind religion. I want to be who you created me to be. I want to discover the, the, the endless horizons of what you can do, of who you are. Just pray that prayer. I see some of you 
beginning to weep in his presence. That's great. Let him do what he wants to do. Father, I pray right now for everybody who in this difficult moment of conviction, this difficult moment of looking within, that they're listening to your voice and you finally got their full attention. And God, I pray that right now in Jesus' name as they come before you and say, oh God, I repent. Change my heart. Change my life. I'm not, I'm not going to rely on my religious activity. But Lord, I want a brand new, fresh relationship with you. I want to see what, what you can do. I want you to start a new thing in me. Something in me has died, God. I want you to resurrect that. Bring new life to my relationship with you. And God, as, as they pray that prayer, I pray, God, that in Jesus' name, that today would be a turning point. I'm asking, God, that in Jesus' name, that, that tomorrow morning when they wake up, the first thought in their mind will be today. I'm, I know God will be good to me because that's who He is, not because of what I've done. And that you would let them walk in that intimate walk with you all day long, all day long, Lord. We just thank you, God, for what you're doing. And I pray, Lord, for the rest of us. There, most of us, I think, God, are, as far as I can tell, we're in a pretty good place in our relationship with you. But, God, I also know that deceit creeps in very slowly. And so, God, I pray you'd help us to guard our hearts and that we won't allow the deceit of the enemy, whether it's the deceit of unforgiveness or the deceit of bitterness or whatever it is, God, that we won't allow that to creep in, that we won't allow that to become a part of our lives. But, God... Teach us to guard our hearts by getting into your word, by staying faithful in your word, by listening and spending time with you every day, Lord. Teach us, train us, make us who you want us to be. And God, I pray that as we prepare to go out from this place, I pray that you would use us even today, God, to be a light shining in the darkness. This world is so very dark, Lord God. But the good news is you've, you've put us here to be lights in the darkness. So God, I pray you let our lights shine so that people would see our lives and they would glorify our Father who's in heaven. And we give you thanks for all of these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.